Morning. Are you having a great Christmas season already? Oh, you're not. Those of you that haven't got my present, I'll have a list out in the lobby. You can uh, get what you need to get. A couple of things I'd like to mention to you as we get started. Um, I don't really know who it was, and, and if someone knows, you can share with us later. But apparently, there was a, a teenager this morning, I believe it was, right here in Arlington, was in a very serious wreck. So uh, I don't know who that was. I think they had to airlift him to the him or her to the med. I'm not sure. Someone was just telling me in general, but the Lord just kind of laid it on my heart. I want us to, to, to pause before we start today and, and just pray for that. Uh, Teenager, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even though we don't know all the, the details, you're in it, you're, you're in tomorrow. Uh, all we know, Lord, is that you tell us to trust you and to pray. That's what we do. That's what we are doing as the body of Christ. And we specifically pray for this uh, young person, Lord. It's uh, uh, just hard anytime you hear about uh, tragedy and all that's been going on with, with Gatlinburg and other places uh, just near to us this very week. Lord, we pray for this teenager. We don't know even, even right now what's going on, but we trust you. We just pray for the, the health of this young person, the, the healing, whatever the cause from the accident, Father, that um, he or she can get uh, healed and get well. We just place them in your hands. Pray for the comfort of their family as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Mark chapter 2. A couple things I do want to mention as, as we, uh, or one other thing as we get ready to, to, for today. If you get a chance and you, you uh, have time tonight, we're doing the, the, having an Advent worship service at the Bartlett campus tonight, both campuses all coming together as Christ Church. And I think it'll be a really special time. It's something we've never really done this particular thing before. So we're anxious to see how it works out, how the Lord uses it. So if you're available at 6 o'clock tonight at the Bartlett campus, uh, I think you would enjoy being there. We'll have a good time to go just worshiping the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's tonight at 6 in Bartlett. Uh, and one other side note, if any of you, those of you who are born again, who are planning on going to Christmas City, uh, the Lord in his wisdom is teaching Randy a lesson. Uh, Friday night, which is when we were going, is going to be 20 degrees. And the Lord in his wisdom through my wife Mary and others has said, we're not taking grandchildren out in 20 degree weather on, at night. So, uh, I'm going to try for a different date. So if you think you're, in, if you're interested in going, be sure and see Mary or I after the service, but we're not going to go Friday the 9th. I'm looking at a different date. Maybe the, the Lord will give us a break. In the, you can always go out there on your own, but it's not as much fun if you don't go with me. I'm going to be real honest with you. If you are going to go, be sure you go on Friday or Saturday night because Jesus is there on Friday and Saturday night. The rest of the time, it's all right, but it ain't quite the same. So anyway, if you think you're interested in going, be sure and see Mary or I after the service. If you need a Bible, Raise your hand, and these guys will be glad to give you one. If you have your Bibles or indoor devices, turn to Mark 
chapter 2. I love everything about Christmas. I know some people don't. I do. Um, I know growing up, it was tough at our house a lot of times, and, but my mom lived for this time of year. I think it was the, the grace of God that he took her home in December of 1999 because she loved everything about Christmas. She had no idea how to give presents. She, yeah, our son, I don't know how old he was, he was like 12 and had a cousin that was uh, uh, younger than him, like, I don't know, four or five years. And one Christmas, my mom gave the younger cousin a chemistry set. He was like six. And Andy was about 12, and he gave, what did he give? She gave Andy, I don't even remember. Like a coloring book or something, I don't know who. But it was, in other words, if she'd reversed them, they'd have been great gifts. And it was, it was just, we'd get together, and my mom just had a way of, of making you laugh. Um, it just, she gave my dad a pair of pants one time. I won't tell you what my dad said. But uh, four or five of us could have gotten in those pair of pants. My dad's nickname was Slim. So you know about what size. If you've ever seen my son, you've seen my dad. My son is 6'2", 140, all man. So she gave my dad a pair of pants. I, I have, me, my two brothers, and my dad could have all gotten in those pants. And he looked at him and held them up and said, Virginia? I won't tell, anybody, tell you what he said after that. All right. But I just love everything about Christmas. I love uh, kids and their, their, how their eyes light up, and they're just so excited about just life. And I remember, as I said, many times it was tough at my home, but I always knew I was going to get something, and I knew that it would be exciting. And uh, I found this little article this week just reading through some stuff, and these are some actual letters that kids have written to Santa Claus. You've probably seen some of these things. And I just wrote down two or three that I thought were just hilarious. Dear Santa Claus, when you come to my house, there'll be cookies for you. But if you're real hungry, you can use our phone and order a pizza. <laughs> Dear Santa, I want a puppy. I want a playhouse. Thank you. I've been good most of the time. Sometimes I'm wild. This is from a four-year-old. Dear Santa, I'll take anything, because I really hadn't been that good. <laughs> you can appreciate that honesty, right? I like that one. I'll take, I'll take anything. And lastly, dear Santa, I'm not going to ask for a lot. Here's my list. The Etch-A-Sketch animator, two packs of number two pencils, Crayola fat markers, and the big gift, my own color TV. Okay, you can drop the pencils. I don't want to be selfish. <laughs> All right. One of the things I want to do as, we, as we're in the Christmas season and the Advent season, uh, I really appreciate all the reminders of, of, you know, I listen to a lot of Christmas music. It drives Mary crazy. I just have it on somewhere else. She turns off one thing. I'll go in another room, turn something else on, and just got, got music everywhere. So... One of the things, let me find where I want to begin today because i got so much that I want to do. Uh, all right, we're going to start there. Make it easy on you. All right, turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 20. One of the things I want to do as we're going through this series of Mark, the servant savior, this particular month, I also want to kind of make sure we, we get the big picture because it's not just 
as we're looking at the life of Jesus Christ and the public ministry of Christ, I want us to constantly be coming back to the reminder of what happened at Christmas. And in the music and in the sharing of the Word of God and the Advent candle, just being together and fellowshipping as the body of Christ. There's so many things. And even when you listen to secular music at this time of year, you'll hear a lot of references, uh, sometimes just because you know the music, what it's referring to in the life of Jesus Christ. You'll hear somebody singing something like Joy to the World. They have no idea what they're singing and what it's about, something about Jesus who came, but we really understand what that joy is all about, what it really means that, that Christ came to die for our sins. For example, this morning, earlier in the service, which, by the way, starts at what time? Okay, we have another service that apparently goes on in the lobby from 10.50 to 11.10. I didn't know what, what people don't let me know things. But anyway, from about 10.50 uh, early on, we sang this song today called Go Tell It on the Mountain. You've heard the song, and you could sing it if, if I ask you to stand up. Sing it right now, you probably could. So I'm going to pick somebody at random, like Mary, and say, just stand up and sing, go tell it on the mountain. And then I've got to pick someone else at random that I can come live with. So if I were to say to Cole, for example, stand up and sing, go tell it on the mountain, he would punch me in the lobby on the way out. But I wouldn't do that. But that song, we've all heard it. When, when you start singing, you know the words, you start singing it. Did anybody know the genesis of that song, how it came about? It's an interesting song. It's an old American spiritual from after the Civil War during Reconstruction. They began to sing for the freed slaves. That song kind of became an anthem, Go Tell It on the Mountain, kind of like Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount, from the, the greatest sermon ever preached was from a mountain. And what happened in the late 1800s, particularly around 1879 and following, it became a fundraising, there was a group from Fisk University in Nashville that would go around and sing that song at different places, venues, to raise money for, for freed slaves to go to school at Fisk University. And I thought that was really interesting that how that's the origin of it and the genesis of it. And, I, and if you go back and you study a lot of, like, and I love to read Christmas carols and as we sing them, think about the words the incredibly deep theology that's in some of the Christmas carols, like, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You go through there, there's some just unbelievably deep theology that was put into that song. And so as we sing and as we worship together, whether it's Christmas or any other time of year, that as we're singing to the Lord together as the body of Christ, you focus mentally on what the words that are coming out of your mouth and the words that are coming from Peter and the worship team as they lead us thinking about who is our Savior. So as we look at our servant Savior, Jesus the Christ, who came at Christmas, that's his first advent. We were studying in 1 Peter in our precept Bible study, and one of the things we're talking about are last days. Well, his first advent initiated the time in history when last days began. It's also known as the church age. He came the first time. But we know he's what? Coming back a second time. And when he comes back his second advent or second coming, when Jesus comes the second time, last days will end. So in the interim, for 2,000 plus years now, we've been in the church age. Hebrews tells us it's the last days. And that phrase is used several times in Scripture, referencing that God is speaking to us now in these last days 
through his son. What's so magnificent about that for us as believers is that we get to then go out into our world and share who the Christ of Christmas really is. And not just in December, in July. You watch the Hallmark Channel in July. They'll run all these Christmas movies again, and I will cut my throat. You get to see every day. You get to manifest the Christ of Christmas because he's also the Christ of Easter. He's the Christ of your life every day. He's the one that gives you a reason for living, a meaning, a purpose, hope that non-believers don't have. So look at your handout. The servant, Savior's lordship is what we're looking at. We've done number one, that he's lord over sin. We're in the middle of number two, that he's lord over self-righteousness. And we're talking about, we've already dealt with the, him being the physician over sick sinners, or with four sick sinners. And we're looking at the aspect of him being the bridegroom, that he came for his bride. That's who we are. The church is also known as the bride of Christ. So look at verse 18. This is where we were last week. And as we begin to go forward, 2.18 of Mark. The disciples of John, the Pharisees were fasting. They came to him and said, why do the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, do not? Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So here's Jesus' point. This is where we left off last week. I am the bridegroom. And I am here calling and saving individuals. And a wedding is a time of celebration. Fasting is a time of mourning, looking at your sin, spiritually focusing on where you are, and mourning over your sin. But a wedding is a time of great celebration and joy. Christmas, probably the Christmas carol that's played more than any other, or at least it's in the top two or three, is Joy to the World. Not the Three Dog Night version, but the Christmas carol. Joy to the World. You hear it talked about all the time this time of year. That's what Jesus is focusing on here. He wants them to understand. I came to bring joy into your lives, not mourning. The time is going to come when I'm not physically here with you anymore, and there's nothing wrong with fasting, and that's a good thing. But right now, I'm here. Let's celebrate. A couple of quick examples. The first miracle that's recorded for us in the Word of God, in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, occurred where? At a wedding in Cana of Galilee. He changes water into wine. It's a celebration. When we get to the eternal state and the church is there and the last days are over, the church age is ended, and we begin the eternal time with Jesus Christ, the great celebration is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are his bride, and we're going to celebrate that. That's what Jesus wanted the Pharisees to understand. It's not about your fake mourning. It's not about your fake fasting. It's not about your fake religion. It's about a relationship with God that brings you ultimate, deep, satisfying, eternal, perpetual, real joy. That's why I'm here. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, the Bible says, you don't have to turn there, the Bible says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, 
for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And there's a whole lot in there that we could study, but we're not doing that. I just want you to note a couple of things. You look at the screen and you can see it. He's covered me, number one, with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. Right above that, he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. One of the things I want you to note about this, these are the exact, it's a metaphorical picture, and in the Old Testament, here's what would happen. If John and I were to go into a contract with each other to do some work, he would do all the work, and I would stand around and look at it and say, nice job, John. That would be our contract. If we entered into a contract relationship in the Old Testament, you would sign a covenant. You would strike hands, we call it today, shaking hands. You would cut covenant, the two of you would walk between the pieces of cut flesh laid out in an aisle, and you would walk down that aisle side by side to signify your covenant partnership, and you would exchange things, identity. You would exchange robes, and what you would do by exchanging robes would say, John's enemies have become my enemies. John's friends have become my friends. You would identify with the other person you're entering into covenant with. That's why marriage is called in the Bible a covenant relationship. That you exchange at an altar when you get married, what do you exchange? Vows. Covenant vows. That's the Old Testament word for covenant. It's a vow, a solemn promise that I make to my wife, and then you walk down the aisle side by side to begin life as covenant partners, just like I would with John. When Mary and I got married in 1973, and we walked down that aisle, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing as a husband. That's 43 years later, I still have absolutely no idea what I'm doing as a husband. But Mary tells me on a daily basis, this is what you do today. No, stop that. Do this. So he, God gave me the perfect person in Genesis, he put it this way, Adam needed somebody to complete him. Randy needed somebody to complete him, so he gave Randy Mary. And so for the rest of our lives, we go through life together, equal partners, covenant relationship. That's the beauty of understanding Christmas. See, it says right here, he gave me the robe of righteousness. When I became a Christian, Jesus came, died in my place, and when I trust my faith, that that baby in the manger was the Christ that went to the cross, that died for my sins. When I, by faith, repent and trust him and I'm born again, you know what the Bible says he gives me? Quote, the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. You know why you get to go to heaven when you die? Because you're wearing Jesus' robe. Man, it's a beautiful picture. You get to go to heaven because Jesus gave you his robe to identify with you and say, you're mine. You're a child of God. You're my bride. You're mine. Remember John 14, I'll go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, you may, there you may be what? Also, he's coming back for us. And we're going to be with him forever because we're his. That's what it's being talked about here. Identity. So he was saying to the Pharisees, I came to bring something that's so joyful and you want to mourn. No, no, we're going to celebrate. You see, they celebrated at a wedding for seven days. Seven in the Bible is a, is a, a number of perfection. 
You know why you're allowed in the presence of God? Because your sins are forgiven. You're declared righteous, not because you're good, because Jesus was perfect. See that? Also in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, the Bible says this. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, there's the word, with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them out of the hand and lead them out of the hand, land of Egypt. In other words, not like the Mosaic covenant. I got a new one coming. My covenant, which they broke, the Mosaic covenant, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. See the bride metaphor again? Husband. God says, I was a husband. There's an entire book in the Old Testament called Hosea. Fascinating prophetic book. It's written by a prophet. It's not really that prophetic. It's written by a prophet. The book of Hosea is a picture of spiritual adultery God, where Israel had turned their back on God and were worshiping other gods. And so God has his prophet marry a prostitute to picture for them what they were doing. Fascinating. Here's what God is saying. I got a new covenant coming. And in that covenant, it's going to be different. They broke the Mosaic covenant. And they paid a price. But I got a new covenant coming. It'll solve all that. Now, in the upper room, as Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we quote the words of Jesus Christ, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is given for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. Everybody in that room was Jewish. Everybody in that room, when he said, this is the new covenant, they knew he was talking about Jeremiah. They knew it. Jesus was saying, you know the, the promised covenant that God gave to Jeremiah where he says it'll be written on your heart? Here it is. Man, I'm getting goosebumps just quoting it because it's exactly what he does for you when he saves you. That's exactly what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. Christmas Eve, when we gather here together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is this blood is what Christmas is all about. We love the baby. We, I'm glad he came. Trust me, we're glad he came. Emmanuel, God with us. But what we celebrate is that that body was broken for me. That blood was shed so I could be forgiven and I could go to heaven. So here's what Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand. I'm in a bride, bridegroom relationship with people who follow me. And there is no more special relationship on planet Earth than being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You Pharisees miss it. You're very religious, but you've missed it. One last example. In John 3, John the Baptist is, to is talking. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, John the Baptist, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. <clears throat> but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is John the Baptist who had a tremendous following, but he knew his job, he knew his role, he knew his ministry. His ministry was to say to the world, I'm not the Christ, don't follow me. There he is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he, say, he said. I'm just a voice to tell you about the Christ. I'm a messenger sent before him. 
the herald is coming. He's here. He has to increase. And the literal Greek is, he must increase and I decrease. The idea is in my life, when Christ increases, what happens to Randy? Randy fades. Not Randy's personality. Aren't we all glad about that? Not Randy's personality, but Randy's selfish sin nature. The new master takes over, and the old sin nature backs off so that people can see the Christ. That's why it says we're a lamp. We're a light, because it's Christ in me is the light, the hope of the world. That's what Christmas is. So John the Baptist says he must increase. And man, when he increases, I decrease. And by the way, that's a good thing. Not a bad thing. It's a good thing. That's what it's about. But he says, understand, this is who I am. Now, look at verse 21. He says, I'm Lord over self-righteousness. I'm the great physician. I came to save those who realize they're sick. I'm the bridegroom. I came to have a relationship with those who will follow me, who are saved, but also bring a new way. I bring a new way. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the, and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled. And the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wine skins. Remember the context. Jesus is teaching the Pharisees a lesson. I came to save sinners. I came to be the bridegroom for the bride. Now here's the third lesson. I came to introduce a new way. Not patch up your old legalistic way that doesn't work. I didn't come to be part of your Pharisaical religion that supposedly is true Judaism. I came to give you the new way, the new covenant, God's way, not the God you say is God, but the God who is God. In John chapter 8, it's a very powerful passage where Jesus is dealing with these same people, the Pharisees. And he's talking about Father Abraham. Well, Abraham was everything to a Jew. And, G and they're talking about their father Abraham, and Jesus made an incredible statement in John 8, 58. Jesus says these words. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And he goes on to say, Abraham looked forward to my day. God, the Bible says God preached the gospel to Abraham. What do you think Abraham told Isaac? What do you think Isaac told Jacob? What do you think Jacob told the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel? And they passed on, and they passed on, and then the Pharisees come along, and they've just totally lost all of it. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And when those Jews, particularly Pharisees, heard Jesus speak the phrase, I am, what do you think they were doing at that point? They were going crazy. We've got to kill this guy. He thinks he's God. They were terrified of him, of what he could do to their power structure. So he's saying to them here, I bring a new way. And he gives them two examples. I love the way Jesus uses things they would understand. They wanted, the Pharisees wanted Jesus, if possible, because we've already seen in the book of Mark, what kind of following did Jesus have at this point? Thousands of people were flying. Remember, he goes out in the wilderness to be alone, and what happens? They find him. 
even without Twitter. They find him. And they flock to him in the wilderness. He goes to Peter and Andrew's house just to rest after church, to take a nap, eat, take a nap. And what do they do? The entire city comes to him and is lined up at the door to get healed like Peter's mother-in-law. Everywhere he goes, they're flocking to him by the thousands. The Pharisees aren't stupid. And they see that, and what do they want? They want to get in on it. What they want, what their desire would be, is, hey, if we could just talk this Jesus into working with us, doing it our way, we can all benefit from this. But instead, he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. We can't have that. So Jesus is saying to them, no, no, you need to understand. I'm bringing you a new way. I'm not patching up your old way that does not work. Historically, that moment in time, all the Jews knew and understood because of the Pharisees was solemn ritual, ceremonial, stale worship at the temple, people stealing from them so they could offer sacrifices, cheating them, and at the synagogue, worship that didn't mean anything. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and it's, remember, you saw, we've already seen it once, you'll see it several times, that when Jesus teaches, what's the response? He teaches with authority like we've never heard. Because the Pharisees didn't have any authority. They didn't have God. They just had themselves. And they quote other rabbis. They'd read the scriptures, but it didn't mean anything to them. It was just a ritual. We saw that last week. We talked about over in Amos, what God had said to them about, stop it. So Jesus says, I bring you a new way. He gives them two quick illustrations that they would understand. Number one is the illustration of the garments in verse 21. He says, look at verse 21 again. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. In other words, you don't take a, if you've got a hole in something and you want to fix it, you don't take something new and try to sew it in there, because when it shrinks, what's it going to do? It's going to tear it up and make it worse. So I'm not, he uses that example so they would understand. You're going to ruin both the piece you put on there and the old. So Jesus' new way was going to be totally incompatible with their old way. He was bringing a gospel of forgiveness by faith, alone, what do the Pharisees offer to the people? You do our way. You keep up. You do the things we tell you to do, and maybe you'll make it if you're good enough. If you don't think that's relevant, you're not being honest with yourself. You've heard me say this before, but I challenge you to do it. Whether it's a total stranger that you get an opportunity to share your faith with, or a family member, just somebody you get to ask them, Ask them, are you going to heaven when you die? And most of them will say what? I hope so. Based on what? Based on what? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? Andy Stanley wrote a great book years ago called, Are You? How Do You Ever Know You're Good Enough? What's good enough? And the Bible says, what's, the Bible tells you, by the way, what's good enough. What does the Bible say? None of you are good enough. There are none righteous, no, not one. Can you get any more plain than that? There are none righteous, no, not one. And all your righteousness 
is as filthy rags. All of it. So if you're trying to be good enough to get in, guess what? You're wasting your time. As far as that's concerned, that's the beauty of understanding the baby in the manger who was the Christ on the cross. Because if you come to the cross and you look up to him to live, does it matter who you are at the cross? No. The very people who were brutally, had been brutally beating him and hung him on that cross, Jesus looked down at them, looked up to the Father and said what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says the same thing to us. Because the thief on the cross said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. We all come to him the same way. It's unique because of who he is and because of what he teaches. The Pharisees, what, it's all about works. It's all about rules. It's all about ritual. It's all about legalism. And the people were just beat down and just hopeless. And then Jesus comes along and says, forget, don't do it their way. Come to God with a pure heart. You will be accepted. Not perfect, because none of you are perfect. Just repentant, trusting. You're in. And then when you're in, you'll do good works. You know why? Because you're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So now you'll do it the way Christ would do it. Remember the WWJD bracelets? You don't have to wear a bracelet to do things the way Jesus would do it. Guess what you got to do? Be born again. Be serious about your faith. Do it Jesus' way. You'll always win. So, second example, verse 22. No one puts a new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Basically, what a wineskin was is they would take an animal and it was in, cut off its head, clean it up, clean it out, let it dry. You had the entire skin, one piece, and they would put their wine into it, sheep or goat, whatever it might be. Over time, it would become tender, it would get thin, the skin would, and it could be easily ruptured as an old wineskin. If you put new wine into an old skin, when that wine would start to, start to ferment, it would swell the skin, and what would happen? Clearly, it would burst, and you'd lose both the wineskin and the wine. You would have nothing. So here's Jesus' point to them. What a great teacher he was. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Your old legalistic ways are not flexible enough to accept new wine, what I'm bringing, the new covenant, because I'm bringing something that the law is going to be written on the hearts like God had promised through Jeremiah, not on stone like he had given to Moses. It's going to be written on the hearts. The Holy Spirit is not going to be just out there. He's going to be in you, in your heart. You can obey God not because somebody makes you, but because you have the power to do it. God himself indwelling you gives you the power to do righteousness. You can't do it any other way and please God. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. He's not interested in my self-righteous works. He's interested in my faith it leads to good works. It's a huge difference. And then finally, we talked about it a moment ago, the new that Jesus was talking about. 
It's the salvation he would bring. You're going to get a new robe, not something old to put on. You're going to get Jesus' robe, righteousness, brand new. You can always look at it this way. When you got saved, whatever age you were, for me it was 16. I know some in here it's as early as 8, 7. Uh, Mary was a, a, a child. I was a teenager. Some of you even as adults. I know there's people in the room who were saved in their 70s. That's fantastic. It doesn't matter when you were saved. It matters that you are. And here's the deal. When I got saved on April 19, 1970, God that moment in time, he'd already done it, but that moment in time became real. He declared me righteous. Not good, but right standing with God. I love the Bible using the term adoption. Adoption. God says, I choose Randy, I adopt Randy, Randy's in my family, and from that moment forward, who was my daddy? Who's your daddy? Mine's Jesus. God is my daddy. You can't lose. You can't lose. It was so real to me. It meant so much to me because I had no relationship with my earthly father. You heard me talk about it. I didn't until the end of his life. Last few years of his life. But when I got saved at age 16, I had a heavenly father. It was all I needed. He brought other older men into my life to disciple me, to teach me show me what it meant to be a godly man, something I could aspire to be, but I always had my heavenly father who declared righteous, you're his. It is not based on your good looks, your good works, or your status, or your bank account. Aren't you glad? I know I am. And then for the rest of your time on earth, you're just God's boy or God's girl doing what daddy wants you to do. And then at some point in time, daddy says, okay, Randy, it's time to come home. Can't play outside anymore. The street lights are on. Come in. Don't go home. And the Bible tells me that the day he says, Randy, it's time to go home. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says it's the best day of my life. We don't think that way. But God says that's the way it is, Randy. It's the day you die. As a believer, it's the best day of your life. Not the worst, the best, because you go home. You go home. So Jesus said, I want you to understand. Romans 8, the Bible says these words. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're born again. But the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did it by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, there's no condemnation because I'm in Christ. That's the only reason. If I'm not in Christ, I will be condemned. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. I'm set free to live by the Spirit, not by the law like the Pharisees did. Not the legalism, but the Spirit. 
I want to do one last thing today, kind of a little different than I want to do this month. Turn to Luke chapter 2. So over just a few pages, I'm going to do a little Christmas devotion, and then we're going to wrap this up. Thinking about who this servant Savior is. Thinking about the joy he brings you. Thinking about God has known about you before he ever created the universe. I'm going to read something that's very familiar to all of us. Thinking about it along those terms. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. A census. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now we're going to stop there. Here's what I want you to see. In the Christmas story, we love the beautiful picture, and Mary and I were looking at a nativity scene uh, last night, I think it was, and she was talking about how she loves to see Mary holding the baby in the nativity scenes where Mary's actually holding the baby, and how special that would be, particularly to a mom. I, I can understand how special that would be. But here's what I want you to note about this. As it all begins, we all read this passage a million times over the years in our lifetime. Caesar Augustus was what on planet Earth at this point in time? He was a god to the Romans. He was the most powerful man on planet Earth, Caesar Augustus. And God decides, it's time, I'll just use Caesar to get this thing started. Because it was ordained by God hundreds of years prior to this, in Micah 5.2, the Bible says the Messiah would be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before Caesar Augustus ever came on the scene, God said this is where the Messiah will be born, in Bethlehem. Well, Joseph and Mary, when she's about to have a baby, and she's in Nazareth, which is a long way from Bethlehem, would you like to travel that far by riding a donkey or walking if you're nine months pregnant, ladies? Probably not. God said, it's time. So he has Caesar call for a census. I love that. This is what I want you to be excited about. Rome thought they were everything and a bag of chips, as someone might say. What was God reminding Rome and the world, and you and I as we read this today, what was God reminding us? Caesar was nothing but a pawn in my chess game. And when it came time for him to leave the table, he left the table because I win the game. Ordained by God in eternity past. Prophesied by God hundreds of years before it ever happened. Rome used by God when it was God's time. This mammoth empire, the Roman Empire, was simply being used by God for what he wanted to happen. Proverbs 21.1, the Bible says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, 
and he turns it wherever he will. Here's the last thing I want you to understand about Christmas, about the servant Savior. Your God is huge. You have a big God who does everything on behalf of his people. That's the message of Christmas. That baby came because God said it's time. Rome couldn't have stopped it if they wanted to. Herod tried, didn't he? Didn't do him any good either. What did Jesus tell Pilate? The only authority you have is that's been given to you. I am. You bow your heads, please. Lord, as we just reflect for a moment, as Christians, we obviously we celebrate Christmas and we love the message of Christ in the manger, the beauty of understanding what God was doing. But Lord, I think more importantly, we need to be reminded what he is doing even now. He came the first time, but he's coming back. He came to die to be the servant savior and he did that and he rose again he conquered sin and death and he ascended to the right hand of the father and he ever lives perpetually lives on our behalf interceding i pray we'd be humbled by that grateful for that motivated by that to share christmas what it really is what it will do who jesus is what he did. So I pray for all of us here who are believers that we'd be excited about being the bride of Christ. We'd be excited about the Christ of Christmas. And we would lovingly tell other people about that Jesus. We pray for them. Think about our neighbors and people who celebrate Christmas, particularly children that are in families where they're not hearing about Jesus. Oh Lord, give us a chance to share Jesus lovingly tell them about the Christ. Lord, if there's somebody here who's not a Christian, they would just come and ask the questions that they have. We'd love to share the answers because Jesus is the answer. We commit this time to you, Lord, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand as we